0: Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Okay, so hi everyone. Welcome to the Virtual Student Experiences Intro to Investing Workshop. If you guys are new to our program, the Virtual Student Experiences or DSC is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. The goal of the VSE is to give students around the world an opportunity to hear from professionals in their career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. For students that know what they want to do, the role of the VSE is to encourage, allow, and connect those students with professionals. Uh, Through VSE, students are given the chance to decide if their career choice fits their personality, skills, and overall interests. Uh, And for students who are ambivalent about their future, the role of the VSC is to help them not only explore, but to discover different career paths and options for their future. Today's session is a special webinar with the focus of bringing, bringing you all an easy to understand introduction to investing webinar. Our presentation contains up-to-date information and graphics that are there to help you understand and grasp the concepts that we'll be covering in, more than, in a way more than just us speaking to you. Uh, to find out more information about our program and sign up to be notified about future webinars, you can visit our website at www.retrostudenexperiences.com. And before we get started, I just wanna go over some housekeeping things, uh, so hang on tight. Uh, today we'll be covering a, four different main areas of investing. We'll start by covering healthy diversification and basically what a healthy portfolio looks like. We'll then go over the basics of stocks and bonds, and then we'll cover risk and reward, and then end with how to read a stock chart and what to look for in terms of patterns in specifically the candlestick ch- stock chart. Um, But if at any time you think of a question, please feel free to put it in the Q&A module, which you can access at the bottom of the screen, and we'll try to answer it live. Before we begin, we must state as a disclaimer that this following information is intended as educational and not financial advice. For the official investing recommendations, please consult your financial planner and or accountant, and this information is current to the best of our knowledge as of June 8th, 2020. And now I'd like to introduce um, my co-instructor, the guest professional, um, Lauren Pear, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania who spent the early years of her career as a high finance professional, where she worked at the Bulge Bracket Investment Bank, Goldman Sachs. Uh, she also worked in a New York hedge fund as well as the New York Federal Reserve. She now is on the board of trustees at the director and, and a director at the Honolulu Waldorf School and holds a position in their finance division she's also the author of a new series on the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing. And now for our team, managing the back end, we have Kainoa Kalabata, our social media manager, Jonathan Wu, and also joining us today is our chief canvasser, Beckett Wren. And so without further ado, Lauren, do you want to talk about healthy diversification?
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for having me, buddy. Um, so I, I want to start with healthy diversification because I think that this is something that it's easy when uh, you're getting excited about stocks, especially with the wild gyrations that we're seeing. It's easy to just jump into one or another um, and not first really think about how much money you actually want to allocate to your investing activities and within that, you know, between stocks, bonds, different uh, types of investment assets. Now, uh, uh, it depends a lot on what you're trying to achieve and your personal risk tolerance, right? So it is, there's a bit of a personal um, choice in this. And to be honest, for people like yourself, like for those under 25, it's not even against conventional wisdom to be 100% in stock. So for, for people as young as you, Um, because as you get older, they tend to suggest a more conservative diversification, but I still think it's important to really consider if that's how you want to spend your money. And as we'll talk about later, I think when you start investing, you probably want to start with like a play account and see how you do before you put your real assets on the line. Um, I'd also highly recommend when you do that, uh, starting an investing journal because, That is how you know if you were right for the right reasons um, versus just getting lucky because that also happens. So it gives you a better sense. But getting back to healthy diversification, uh, the typical categories are stocks, bonds, and cash. Although cash has kind of fallen by the wayside um, in the past, I don't know, a couple of decades probably because the, the market has done so well as have bonds, so people have kind of forgotten about cash. Um, not everyone, but it's, it's become far less emphasized. And so I just wanted to highlight the, the values of cash, which is one of them is lowering the volatility within your portfolio because cash doesn't go up or down. So as your stocks and bonds are going down, it gives some stability. And then the kind of more exciting purpose of cash, it's considered rather boring, but in, in finance, they call it dry powder which means if the market tanks, um, or if you feel that it could tank, and you're fully invested, then you can't take advantage of those low prices when it tanks. Whereas if you have cash, you don't just have to think about the cash as purely uh, safe, reducing volatility, but again, as dry powder, it's sort of a a latent opportunity that you can take advantage of if there's a, a correction in markets so again for 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 students so young it's um, you know even even the experts say that um very heavy in stocks is is acceptable but then you also have to assess your own risk tolerance and also as you get older if you're going to college you certainly want to separate your money that you need to rent and food and all of that sort of uh, the necessities of life which tends to be in cash. You need that um, ideally out of anything risky uh, where you could lose money. Um, and I also wanted to add that there's a there's a, a fourth bucket of diversification that I think is um, wise to have, you know, a, a small, relatively small allocation in, and that is some combination of precious metals and or cryptocurrencies. Because um, what I'll talk about briefly in a little bit and something I'm really fascinated by with this unprecedented uh, printing that our central banks are doing. And to be really, uh, as a technical disclaimer, they don't physically have to print the trillions they're making anymore. They just take it into their computer screens. So some people will say they're not printing. They're certainly creating trillions of new dollars out of thin air. And I like using the term printing because people understand it quickly. And it, it seems to connect better versus they, they call it now the policy is quantitative easing. And that seems to kind of make a lot of people's eyes glaze over. And it makes them believe that they can't um, understand it. So uh, gold and silver have been used for millennia as money, for, um, they have a couple of attributes that are very particular to precious metals. Um, The rarity of them, the fact that you can divide them up into small pieces without losing value, the fact that they don't uh, rot or go bad. So that's why they've been used as money. A lot of people think it's arbitrary. It isn't arbitrary why they've been used for thousands of years. And they're a a consistent hedge for monetary um malfeasance. And arguably, at the rate central banks are printing all around the world, that's a good reason to have um, some precious metals. And I wouldn't recommend more than 10%. That might even be a lot for some uh allocation I've heard people talk about is 10% precious metals, 1% crypto, and you know then the rest you allocate between your stocks and bonds and cash. And the reason that crypto is so much lower on that um, 1% versus 10% is because of its incredible volatility. Um, I do think that cryptocurrency has a <clears throat> huge potential. The upside, I think, is much greater than precious metals um but the downside is as well so so that's the the thinking there and i know that that's not super prescriptive for stocks and cash and bonds um, but it really does depend on an individual's own risk appetite and for the again for the age of our audience actually like being mostly (coughs) in stocks is what most of the experts recommend Um, should I mention the role of uh, of of central banks now, or do you think that was?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you want to um, further go into how the money printing or quantitative easing affects the stocks and bonds market, uh, briefly, so they can get a good understanding of it, I think that'd be useful.
1: Sure, yeah. Just this year alone, um, the Federal Reserve, which is the United States Central Bank, has printed I think about three trillion, three or four trillion dollars. And uh, around the world, it's much more than that. <coughs> and they use this newly printed money to buy bonds. So how it affects the bond market is actually pretty straightforward. Um, supply and demand, if you have a lot of new demand and you buy, you have this new demand coming in to buy and buy and buy, it pushes up the price. And uh, there's an ironclad rule of bonds, which is that as price goes up, the yield or interest rate goes down. So it's just a mathematical certainty. Um, So how it affects the bond market is pushing up the price and pushing down the interest rate or the yield. And it flows into the stock market a few ways. Um, First, whenever uh, professional money managers are Uh, buying stocks and bonds, they're valuing them relative to each other. So by pushing the prices of bonds up so much, it makes stocks relatively attractive compared to bonds. And so investors will reallocate more of their money from their now more expensive bonds into relatively inexpensive stocks. Um, In addition, sorry, I might have to get water in a second. In addition, um, companies are very debt reliant these days. So lowering Again, when bond prices go up, their interest rates go down, which means that the interest expense companies have to pay also goes down. Um, It also helps uh, companies' stock prices, because a lot of these companies have been using these super low interest rates to borrow money and use that borrowed money to buy back their own stock. And that pushes the price of the stock up. And and finally, um, I I might be missing one, but this is a a brief rundown. Just the economic effects, because the whole point of debt is sort of borrowing from the future to spend today. So it just gives the economy a boost, and obviously when that increases demand by consumers, that helps uh, the companies that the consumers are purchasing from, so their stock prices go up. So that's kind of how it flows through and um just to give a little context i said the the 3 or 4 trillion those numbers get so big it becomes meaningless at a point but we are um compared to where our central bank money there's the cent- the federal reserve balance sheet which contains all the money they've ever printed since their inception in 1913 and it was only 800 billion back in 2008 not even 1 trillion and now it's like seven trillion. So we're, it's what, eight times, something like eight times what it was in 2008. And there's a lot of uh, people thinking that they're going to have to keep printing a lot. So who knows where it will be in a year. But that's pretty stark to increase your entire um, base money supply or central bank money supply by eight times in just over a decade.
0: Yeah. Um, and now on. To uh, on basically, what are the differences between stocks and bonds? So, typically, stocks and bonds they're issued for the same reason, which is to raise capital. And the main difference is that when a company issues stock, they're selling pieces themselves. In contrast to a bond, which is more of an IOU. Uh, when purchasing a stock, you're purchasing the a claim to the future earnings of the company. Uh, when the company so when the company does good, so does your investment. Um, but when you buy a bond, you're loaning the company your money. Um, and so buying their bond, you loan them their money, and over time, they pay you interest and your initial amount back. So I'll give you an example. So say if a company like Tesla wants to build a new Gigafactory, and they don't have enough cash on hand to pay for the construction of the Gigafactory, they might issue a low-interest bond to help them raise that money and allow them to create revenue to pay back that borrowed amount in the bond over time. Um, but an important note to put on the bonds is that bonds have ratings, and the best-rated bonds are the safest and are able to provide investors with more of a peace of mind when investing in them, um, and as the bond rating gets worse and worse, the amount of risk associated with buying those bonds increases. Um, so that's it for me. Lauren, do you have anything to add?
1: Um, I just wanted to add, and I, I think that you're starting to speak to it but that uh, stocks, theoretically, your return is uncapped, right? Like you said, it's a claim on their future earnings. So if you pick a real winner and their earnings go through the roof, you have a claim on that. Your stock can go up 500% or whatever. With bonds, it, as you said, it's an IOU, and it's an IOU with a fixed interest rate for a fixed set of time. So it could be a five-year bond. It could be a 10-year bond. And they're giving you 3%, for example. Um, you're not getting more than 3% if the stock, if the underlying company does fantastically well, right? You're like locked into that. Uh, but the the advantage is that if a company goes into bankruptcy, that as a bondholder, you are in front of uh, stockholders in line to collect from the company. So it's considered safer. Um, you get paid out first as a bondholder, but the upside is higher as an equity holder.
0: Mm-hmm. And now a little bit onto IPOs. But before we discuss IPOs, we have to first, first distinguish the two different types of companies. You have the, the private companies and the public companies. The main distinction of which is that these um, the private companies are not listed on any exchange, and they don't have any shares for, pub, uh, the, for the public, uh, regular people to buy and sell. Uh, the public companies, however, are listed on one or more exchange and have shares that can be publicly bought or sold. Uh, but the process of how a company becomes public is called an IPO. The, uh, what IPO stands for is initial public offering. And in simple terms, the uh, purpose of the IPO is to help the company raise capital or uh, spending money. And the process in simple terms is this. The company will approach the invest an investment bank to advise on how to bring their company public. The bank will then do research on the company and decide how many shares are issued along with the price of the new the price per share on the new issuance um, so I mean if you've ever wondered who decides the price of uh, what a stock is at first it's actually the investment banks and so after this process is, is complete after the uh, company is publicly listed the investors are then allowed to buy and sell shares on the in the new newly public company um, so I mean when looking at stocks bonds and other investments it's easy to ask yourself, like what makes stocks so attractive? And I know um, Lauren touched a little bit on this before, but simply stocks are more of a risky investment and offer more upside returns. So if you were to buy stock in a company and you say bought a stock at $1,000, that stock has the potential to go up to $20,000 or even $100,000. Um, but it also has the ability to go all the way down to zero, which is basically meaning that the company's bankrupt. But in that same company, if you bought a $1,000 bond at a fixed interest rate at a, in a fixed term, at the end of that term, you would receive the $1,000 plus the interest payments over time. Um, but when looking at a scenario such as bankruptcy, I know you touched on this a little bit, Lauren, um, stocks would not be the safest investment because if the company were to go bankrupt in accordance with bankruptcy law, so by law, the companies are have an obligation to pay out the bondholders all of the bondholders, before they then start to pay out compensation to their stockholders. And so, yeah. It's I too- do
1: want to add to that. Sorry to, to cut in. You still might not get your, your $1,000 back if the company you lended money to with the bond goes bankrupt.
0: Yeah, if they have no But more-
1: they will have to legally uh, sort out the assets, and creditors over equity holders will definitely be first in line. So.
0: So, a little bit about dividends. Dividends are basically payments typically made out in a check, paid out to stock shareholders to make their stock seem more attractive. Uh, To receive a dividend payment, the qualification is only that you simply have to hold stock for two business days before the dividend payout. Um, Most companies pay out dividends by using what's called the hybrid approach. And the hybrid approach is what allows a company to establish a set dividend That can be consistently fulfilled with a relatively small piece of their yearly income. Um, But besides that, a mail check will be uh, mailed to investors who then can then choose to uh, either use that to purchase more shares or spend it on whatever they'd like. If they'd like to uh, use that check to the dividends to purchase more shares in the company, they can um, go for what's called a DRIP program, which stands for dividend reinvestment plan. And so they can use that. Dividend amount to actually repurchase more shares in that company that they received the dividend from. Um, and so if you don't really need cash immediately, the DRIP program is a good way to purchase shares commission free since you're skipping the broker. And in this slide right here, you can see some stocks that pay out some uh, pay out actually the highest dividends as well as their yield amounts. And so when deciding what to invest in, I mean it's important to think about and be aware of what is the amount of risk that you're taking on and what is the amount of risk that you're taking on in associated with the type of investment that you're considering. so this next part of our presentation will be uh, to help you look at your risk and see if you're getting the best bang for your buck.
1: Can I add something quickly about dividend yields buddy yeah, you can go ahead great um. Dividends are a great thing to look for in a stock, definitely. Um, there is something called the dividend trap. So the dividend yield, uh, which is shown here, is the amount of dividend versus, um, I believe, the price of the share, right? The price of the share of stock. Sometimes when you see a really high dividend, you wanna do some research into the company if analysts think they're going to cut their dividends. Because since dividend yield is the dividend price divided by the share price, as the share goes down, the dividend yield goes up. And so as a stock is doing poorly for a while, its dividend yield looks fantastic. And people will be like, awesome, I want that you know 15% dividend. And they buy it. And within a couple of months, the company can't afford that dividend because they're struggling, which is why the share price is going down. And then they cut their dividend. And then the person is upset because that juicy dividend that they bought the stock for isn't there anymore. So I just wanted to give that word of caution for for yield traps. But dividends are definitely a great thing to look for um, in stocks. It's the money coming right back to you versus share buybacks where it pushes up the stock price.
0: And just a reminder, if you guys have any questions, feel free to ask it in the Q&A module, and we'll do our best to answer it live. Um, But back to risk and reward, Uh, the first way or one of the ways that you can help to make sure that you're managing your risk and capital allocation is by using what's called the efficient frontier. The efficient frontier method is a tool to help you measure your portfolio's potential return relative to the amount of risk that you're taking on. So basically it's a way to see if you're making the amount of money that you should be relative to the amount of risk that you're taking on. And so if you look into this graphic, what you're aiming for right here is this smiley face. Uh, this portfolio is on the efficient frontier line and it's making what is expect the expected return for the amount of risk that it's taking on. Um, but if you look at, oh, the, at the sun, you can see that it's not in the efficient frontier line and it's taking on a significantly larger amount of risk to receive this same amount of return. And if you look at the moon, then you can see that it's making a significantly less return for the same amount of risk. And both the sun and the moon are good examples of portfolios that are not effectively using their capital to reach their risk and return goals. Um, and on uh,
1: So the price to earnings ratio is one of the most widely used value metrics um, and the simplest. And the idea of it, again, is as Buddy mentioned earlier, a stock is really a claim on the future earnings of a company. And so what you're trying to understand is like, what is the value here? I'm paying price X for this stock. And what type of earnings can I expect since the whole point of owning a stock is that claim on future earnings? What kind of earnings can I expect for my share of stock? And although this isn't always true current earnings tends to be a good indicator of future earnings this is especially true for a more mature company Um, so you know for a more mature company typically maybe a pe of 15 or something is standard but for so, let's say then that that would let's say the market share or the market, um, the price of the share is $15 and the company has $1 of earnings, so that's 15 over one, that's a, a 15 PE. When you might see a higher PE, that would be you were paying more money, so like say $30 for that same $1 of earnings, that's $30 over one, that's a 30 PE. That's twice the P.E. And what that is telling is that you're expecting the earnings to go up a lot. So you would see those high P.E.s in what are presumed to be growth stocks because you're expecting the price might look high relative to the current earnings, but maybe it's um, a company that's going to crush it with 5G right? And so their earnings right now don't look that impressive, but you can see in their couple of year plan that you expect them to really increase their earnings over a couple of years. Um, so that's the idea of, of the PE ratio. Um, and again, it, it really anchors to this point that the whole point of owning a stock is a claim on future earnings. So you're just looking at that price you're paying versus the value you expect to get from it. Which again, you uh, and there is actually like I'm assuming a current PE. There are forward looking PEs where they'll have the price and then the expected earnings going forward. Um, So, um, yeah, that's I think that that sums up the PE ratio. Was that clear, buddy? Do you have any clarifying questions?
0: Or, Um, yeah, I mean, if you guys have any questions on that, just feel free to ask in the QA and we can always go back and elaborate more on it um but moving on a little bit to um, when you're actually looking at deciding on what company you want to invest in it's important to do a little bit of due diligence and research on that company and to not just hop on the bandwagon of what you feel or what you hear is a hot stock but to actually come to your own conclusion of if a certain company is a good investment or not and one way to help you decide if the company is a investment or not, is to look into their financial statements and public reports. And I think it was Warren Buffett who said something along the lines of, if I do my research on a company and I think that they're strong, then the price of the stock shouldn't matter. And so, be like Warren Buffett and do your research on the company. Um, But now that you've been listening to me a little bit and wondering, possibly wondering, like, where exactly do I find these financial statements and reports? Well, The most common place to find them is in the investor relations section of the company that you're researching. So all companies that are public have to publish financial reports and quarterly earnings, which you can find in their investor relations section on their website. So for example, um, this is what Amazon's um, investor relations page looks like. Uh, To review Amazon's financial statements and quarterly reports, Uh, you would go into their quarterly report section and click on their most recent quarterly report which happens to be q1 of 2020 and just a little bit of clarification on that last point there are four business quarters in a year and they all last three months long and so in the last quarter report which was q1 of 2020 amazon um, will have or all companies realistically will have summaries of their quarterly earnings as well as projections and plans to increase their revenue in the next quarter and beyond and so yeah if you scroll down a little bit through their financial statements you'll be able to see that um, along with all the three main financial statements along with the different line items the three main financial statements being the cash flow balance sheet and income statements the cash flow statements measures basically how well a company manages and generates in cash in order to pay off its debt obligations and to fund operating expenses. On the balance sheet, you'll always be able to be looking at the three main items, which are the assets, the liabilities, and the shareholders' equity. Uh, the balance sheet equation goes assets equals liabilities plus shareholders' equity. And finally, the income statement will show you how much money you've made or lost over a period of time. Um, So yeah, those are the three main statements that you would see on an investor relations page. Of course, they might have extra statements as well to convey extra information. Um, So now that you know where to find the information and what to look for for in the financials of a company, you may think to yourself like, so what, what do I do with this information? And realistically, what does it even mean? Um, But there are many different places that you can pull conclusions from when looking into a company's financial statements. Um, and in telling you this, I hope to give you a few tools to start making deductions of your own to come to conclusions on what companies you want to invest in in the future. Um, the first and foremost metric that you can look for in a company's investor relations report is the net income. Um, by looking at this metric, you're discovering, is this company making money? And if so, are they continually making money at a high growth rate, a medium growth rate, a consistent growth rate that's going up, or are they losing money? Um, You don't really need to actually look in the investor relations page to find this. And a a quick way, an easy way to find this realistically is to look in Google and just search the name of the company and add stock to the end and then go into the finance tab. And so, for example, I'll display this. um, um, You can go into Google and search the company such as Uber and then add stock to the end of it and then click on their financials tab. And as I said before, and I mean, as you can see in this image in the last quarter, Uber lost nearly $3 billion. Um, and if you look a little deeper, you'd find that Uber continually loses money and actually hasn't gone, had positive income ever since they became a public company and ipo in the May of 2019. So before investing in Uber, you would want to find out they haven't gone positive since their IPO. They haven't gone positive in income. that is what what you would find when doing your due diligence and research into that company. Um, But another metric that you can look for in a company's financials is the continuous continuous positive earnings per share. Um, The calculation for the company's earnings per share is the company's net profit divided by the number of common shares it has outstanding, so how many shares um, it has out in the market for people to buy and sell. The earnings per share indicates basically how much money a company makes for each share of its stock and is a widely used metric for um, measuring corporate profits. Uh, The higher EPS indicates more value because investors will pay more for a company that displays a higher profit. Uh, And the last thing that I'll talk about when looking into a company's investor relations page is the projections and outlook for the future profits. Um, And as well as their plan to increase revenue and profits in the future. So once again, I'm using Amazon's investor relations report to demonstrate what one of these sections might look like. In this report, Amazon states that their quarter is subject to considerable uncertainty due to many factors, one of which is most likely the coronavirus. Um, They also state other factors such as foreign exchange. Um, Yeah, but they also, in the summary, express that they expect and project their revenues to actually increase over the next quarter. And so all besides looking, I mean besides looking at a company's financials, another good way to help yourself decide what stock you want to invest in and make a prediction on how a stock will behave is by looking at the charts. And now I must say that it's impossible to predict the future, but it is possible to make an inference on how a stock will behave. And there's actually many tons of different methods on trying to draw conclusions on how a stock will behave. But the most common chart that you can actually look at is a candlestick chart, which is displayed here. Um, And so the candlestick charts are made up of uh, basically a bunch of different candlesticks. And it's fairly intuitive in that if the candlestick is red, then during that period, the uh, stock went down. And if it's green, During that period, the stock went up, and the highest point of the candlestick is where the highest price that the stock hit in that period, and the bottom is the lowest price of that stock in that period as well. And I say period because candlesticks can also vary in length depending on what you set them to. And so for my example stock, I chose Alibaba, the largest e-commerce site in the world by revenue and this chart shows a zoomed-in section of a 180-day chart with four-hour candlesticks. Um, Also in this chart, you can see what's called resistance and support bars, and these are lines that if the stock price crosses, it tends to continue in that direction. And so in a real-life chart like this, um, you can see that there was a breach of support and resistance, and it would look like this. In the orange circles, it represents places where breaches happen, and as you can see the, in the chart that the trend, it started to trend in that same direction as when it breached. So over here it breached the level of um, support and it continued on a downtrend, and then over here it breached the level of resistance and continued on an uptrend. Um, but another indicator of how a stock might move is the volume of a stock being moved. So if a major institution such as an investment bank or a hedge fund decides to buy or unload shares of a company in a bulk amount, it'll show up on the volume chart. And so in this image is a chart of Amazon's stock price earlier this year, and there's actually going, there's a lot going on in this image, so I'll break it down and decipher why this stock moved the way it did. Um, So firstly, in this snapshot marked by the orange circle, Amazon had an earnings report on the last day of their quarter four um, of the fiscal year 2019. And so if you look in the bottom area of this snapshot you'll, in the bar graphs, with the, which is the volume chart, you'll see that the volume of shares were transacted that day was 15 million shares. And in comparison to the rest of the trading days, that, that was a significant spike. But since the stock price went higher, we can infer that the majority of those transactions were people buying the stock instead of unloading um, and selling off their shares. And I think we have a question. Lauren, um, the question is, how much should past performance influence your decision to buy a stock?
1: Hmm. And I would say it depends on a, a couple of things to look for with that question. Um, first is, how is the stock done? Like if the stock did poorly in the, class, in the past, like it didn't have the earnings they expected, but the stock fell to an overcorrected point where, for example, their PE ratio went down a lot, then the fact that they didn't do as well as they should have in the past has been discounted into the price. And so that's not as bad a buy versus if a stock is trading at what they call a rich PE ratio, a more expensive one, and their performance hasn't been there. Another thing I would look at is management. Um, Sometimes if management is doing a poor job, they will get, thrown out um, as they should. So if, uh, if you have confidence in a new management team coming in then you don't necessarily want to blame them for the malfeasance of a previous management team. Um, so it, it depends a bit on those kind of factors. Um, one place where I think is a good source to kind of understand the needle movers for a company is the quarterly earnings calls. Every quarter, companies have to have calls with investors. And so these are you know paid professionals at big banks who follow these companies for their job, and so they tend to have their fingers, not always, but often on the pulse to what are the main drivers. So if you listen to those calls, like I just pulled up Apple to check and it says it's not currently available, they tend to keep them up two weeks after they have them sometimes you can find transcripts on seeking alpha or something like that so that's a good place to look in general and if you are feeling like a stock had poor past performance but there's some change going on or the stock went down so much that you think it went below what was warranted by the disappointing performance then i would not necessarily rule out a stock but if it's had consistent mediocre performance the management team is staying and it's still like seems kind of expensive on a a pe or other valuation metrics then i would judge it based on its past metric and and look for better investing options
0: and another note i'd like to add to that is uh, when you're looking at a stock and if you see like a giant dip like it did in back in march you'd want to look at not only the historical chart but the news events that correlate with the times in which the major spikes or declines happen. So if you were to just look at the chart for the S&P in early March, um, and you were to buy a whole bunch of shares because it shows that the stock chart is just going up, the stock is going up and up and up, um, and you weren't able to identify that the coronavirus is going to have a major declining effect on the economy, you would significantly um, have lost a lot of money just by not looking at what's currently happen, happening on in terms of economics. But if you keep up to date with what's happening in the company, like if they're opening up a new warehouse, um, which might increase the production of cars to meet the demand, the increase of demand of um, customers, which would then increase revenue, which would then increase the, rev- the, um, the, the price of the stock, um, you might miss out on a potential boost in the stock. And so I think watching the news and keeping up to date is a good way to also make decisions or inform yourself on, make informed decisions on when to take positions in a stock.
1: And and I just wanted to add, I definitely agree with that news flow is important. And just while we're on this topic, two other places to look goes back to where Buddy was telling you before. If you find their quarterly earnings or their annual earnings, they have these filings, 10 Qs are the quarterly ones, 10 Ks are the annual ones. Um, There are two other sections that I would suggest you look at. When I was at a hedge fund and had to do fundamental analysis, these were two places that my boss sent me. And one is the M, D, and A section, which stands for Management, Discussion, and Analysis. That tends to have some interesting news about important needle movers for the stock. And the other is the quote-unquote risk factors section. And legally, companies are required to put in any kind of significant factor they think could be a negative, uh, could negatively impact the stock. It's a legal requirement of theirs. So, you know, there's a lot of legal covering their butts, but there are also sometimes some interesting gems buried in there that might give you insight. And it is actually shocking how many even professional investors don't do their diligence and, and read those sections. So it could pay off.
0: Um. Um, since we've already reviewed like what exactly is a candlestick chart, I'm going to go over a, a couple of patterns that you can look for when studying the historical prices of a, a stocks in a candlestick chart. Um, the first method of which is called the three-line strike, and this method is said to have an 84% accuracy when predicting the direction of a stock. And so the pattern starts with three candlesticks that close lower each time, and then on the fourth, it reaches the lowest of the three candlesticks and reverses to be higher than the first. So it, there are three consecutive negative candlesticks, which each of, each of them closing near their lows, and then on the fourth candlestick goes back higher than the first candlestick over here. And in a real um, stock chart, you can see that this is in a Google stock chart. The reversal happens over two candlesticks, but still the pattern is correct in predicting that the stock will go up. The um, three red candlesticks um, close near their lows, and then over a period of two uh, positive candlesticks, it reaches higher than the initial first candlestick. Um, and so the next pattern that you can look for is called the three black crows. And the three black crows usually starts around a high point of the stock or an all-time high, and if all, and then if the three black crows occurs, it usually indicates a decline in price. Um, And this method is accurate. It's said to be accurate about 78% of the time, Uh, but this pattern as you can see consists of three negative candlesticks with all of them closing near the bottom of their range. So there's three, one, two, three, with all of them with closing prices um, near the bottom of their range. Um, But Yeah, here's a one day one minute candlestick chart from Microsoft and from the description of the three black crows uh, I'm going to give you a second to Try and put your skills to use and try and figure out and spot where this pattern occurred. Where does the three black crows pattern occur? And I'll give you a second to try and find it. Um, then again, the characteristics are as listed. Uh, there must be three consecutive red candlesticks with all red, all with all of the candlesticks closing near their intra candlestick lows. So I'll give a couple more seconds to try and find that. And in this chart there, the three black crows pattern actually occurs in two places. And as predicted in both places, it follows a downtrend in both places. So um, those are two different patterns that you can look for when analyzing the candlestick chart um, and trying to predict if the stock will go up or down. And remember that uh, you can't necessarily predict the future and that these methods aren't accurate 100% of the time, but as the statistics show, they're accurate Most of the time, Um, and to Lauren on how to why you should start basic.
1: Yeah. um, Again, and I, you know, stocks can be pretty exciting. Certainly, it's more exciting when real money is on the line. But I just wanted to to close with um, preaching caution, especially in this market. I know the market's very exciting with its drops, and now it's like back up to where it was, you know, at, at near, near to its highs, um, back up, uh, you know, where it was past the beginning of the year. And, but it is, it's, it's just a really volatile, risky market. Like, uh, the professionals don't know what's going on. And, um, so I also just wanted to, to, uh, suggest caution because there is this, pattern happening where it looks like a lot of, they call them retail investors are getting in. So that's you and me, that's non-professional money managers, as I don't do that anymore. Um, and m- big money managers and the very rich have been getting out of stocks. And what that's what these two graphs are are trying to articulate. The first one is showing that as the recession was happening, the wealthy were getting out of their stocks with that uh, blue line plunging down right in the, around the 2000 and the dark blue line, exactly in the 2010 recession versus retail investors at the next stock, uh, the next graph rather, were increasing their ownership right at the wrong time. So this article was um, still in that uh, recession zone in 2010, the green line is going up, at the same time that the dark blue line on the the previous graph is going down, which sort of indicates that the top 1% are getting out of their money and selling it to the bottom 90% who are basically holding the bag then when the market declines. And so the fact that there's so much retail money getting in now while the major money uh, investors and the top 1% have been pulling out is seems to suggest that that could be happening again However, I will say, that was the, the thesis this article was written on, um, but just a few days ago, two days ago maybe, there was an article that the hedge fund managers who have been staying out are now getting back in. So, who knows? And I can say from the people that I do still talk to in the hedge fund world, they are all flummoxed by this market i mean they know that the fed is printing but it still does not make sense to them that while unemployment i know there were good unemployment numbers for the you know 2.5 million up but we lost almost 40 million so that's still down like 37 million which really isn't very good and there's a lot of other very concerning economic news coming out you know gdp is expected to contract significantly there are geopolitical tensions a lot to worry about so um A lot of professional investors are um, very confused and or just attribute this to the the Federal Reserve. There is an interesting, a lot of big banks are coming out with notes like this and and, uh, respected institutions, but there is a a Bank of America note recently from their CIO, Michael Harnett, who was talking about how the, the truth is that these markets are fake markets in which government and corporate bond prices have been fixed by central banks, why would anyone expect stocks to price rationally? He asks. Um, And so when you have, uh, unless you have a crystal ball and know exactly what the Federal Reserve is gonna do, it makes it really tough to (coughs) predict markets. So I just suggest caution. And I would also suggest probably, especially for early investors, staying away from options, commodities, currencies, Um, those are even easier to lose money on and more complicated, more professional investors in those spaces. Um, So I, yeah, I I just want to, yeah, uh, preach caution and and capital preservation. Uh, And also something I forgot to mention at the beginning is, is I do think for stocks, there is a lot of risk in individual stock picking when we talk about stocks and bonds. Um, so, if you are wanting to, especially if you don't want to be listening to earning calls all the time, if you don't want to be digging into financial statements, if that's not what you like to do in your free time, if you just put your money in the SPY, spy, it's the S and P 500, and its ticker, you know, you put into Yahoo Finance or Google Finance, SPY. That's just a, a index fund of the S and P 500, which is the you know largest 500 corporations in the U.S. market. It tends to outperform the vast majority of money managers and has a very low fee. Um, So ETFs like that are great. If I'm talking about the pluses of ETFs, I also do wanna add in that there are a lot of more complex like leveraged ETFs or ETFs, for example, USO that is trying to track the oil price but it does so using complicated financial futures that end up bleeding out investor money. So you think that you're in an index that's supposed to be following oil. And in the short term, that's true. But if you look at a graph for like the last 10 years, it's lost you most of your money just because they're playing these contracts where they always lose. So for the more I think that um, ETFs that are just a basket of stocks, like the S&P 500, or sometimes they will be like an energy basket of stocks. Those are um, good things to consider, but the ETFs that are, double leveraged or trying to track some commodity, I, I would just exercise caution. And I, well, one last point on that is that GLD is common for some people as a substitute for actually buying precious metals, for example. They think, well, I can just get the GLD ETF. And from investors, I, I heard this from Jim Rickards. He's a, um, a well-respected financial analyst who's worked for the Department of Defense doing financial war games and things like that, he says that he's actually looked pretty, pretty um, dug deep into the prospectuses of GLD. And in a scenario when gold actually goes up a lot, they don't actually have to pay you that price. They have a clause where um, you're unlikely to get paid out, and they aren't backed by, by real gold. Um, so just just those warnings the basket of stocks ETFs you always want to do your own diligence but they tend to be um, fairly straightforward and I think a, a much better idea than some of the more complex ETFs that are trying to lever up or um, track commodities using um, you know different financial futures contracts um, and yeah again i i want to emphasize too the journal um just so that you can really track your own thinking and own understanding and what you actually it can help you parse luck from being correct to improve your investing and learn from both your wins and your losses going forward and i also think it would just be fascinating to look back like these are kind of wild times in the market so it might just be interesting too to read uh you know, five or ten years down the line how young investor you was uh interpreting and managing these wild markets. Um and, and have fun. It's interesting, you know, and, and, and go after companies you have a real interest in. Um if if you're gonna research, you know. Um I I think it's a great way to spend extra time this summer and yeah, have fun.
0: Yeah, um, and if you guys have any other questions, I'm about to go through uh, my closing. And so if you have any questions, please put it in the Q&A module. And if we have any at the end, then we'll, we'll wrap a fire and pump them all out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us today uh, for our Intro to Investing Workshop. I hope you guys were able to learn something and take away something from your time with us here today at BC. Um, but then again, as our disclaimer, we must state that the information stated in this webinar is intended as education and not financial advice. Um, but for your, fin- your official investing recommendations, please consult your financial planner and or consultant. Um, this information is, t- the, is current to the best of our knowledge as of June 8th, 2020. Um, as I said in our intro, VSE's webinars are usually interviews with industry professionals such as Lauren Pear. Uh, which you can view on our youtube channel linked in our website you can view our website at virtualstudentexperiences.com and there you can sign up to be on our email list to uh, receive future emails about uh, upcoming webinars and on our website you can also view our different social links so um, if there's no other questions thank you so much for joining us today and have a nice rest of your day everyone